you have received a magnificent invitation written in golden ink. You are invited to relax through this chapter-by-chapter calm summary of The Lord of the Rings. You can listen, ignore, or a little of both. For the next few minutes, the only thing you have to worry about is Chapter 4 of The Fellowship of the Ring. The rain is pouring, but you don't mind because you're under a huge old tree with your friends, drinking elven wine and feeling like the next few miles will be just as simple as the next few steps. In the last chapter, Frodo attempted to obscure his departure from the Shire by selling his home and announcing a move back to where he grew up. Only he and Sam know that his plan is actually to stay there for only a short time before leaving. On the evening walk to his new home, they are twice overtaken by a menacing rider in black who seems to be tracking them and whose presence mysteriously gives Frodo the compulsion to put on the ring. When they seem closest to capture, they are unexpectedly saved by a traveling band of elves who happen to be walking by. They eat a late dinner with the elves and fall asleep untroubled, despite the threat of the riders and the absence of Gandalf. Today, Frodo, Sam, and Pippin will be continuing their walk to the new house in Crick Hollow. This chapter is all about hidden meanings. Remember that this trilogy is usually quite clear, or seems to be quite clear from the outset, on who and what is good and evil. The elves actually radiate moonbeams, for goodness sake. Anytime anything subverts our initial impressions, we need to take a second look. So, here we go. Chapter 4 of Book 1, A Shortcut to Mushrooms. Can you remember the last time you woke up naturally after a good night's sleep? There's that feeling of absolute peace and comfort that comes when your brain surfaces to a still consciousness. You can take a moment to enjoy the stillness and the sun coming through your window. Think of that feeling and picture yourself lying on a bed of soft ferns and deep grass looking up through interlacing branches of a tree. Your breath is slow and comfortable. The soft pink morning sunlight is filtering in through layered leaves that flutter in the early morning breeze and the dewy dawn chill is just beginning to subside. It's late morning after the impromptu elvish dinner party, and unlike the previous day, Frodo is the last to wake up. Feeling refreshed, he heads out to find his friends. The elves are long gone from the grassy field overlooking the hobbit village of Woodhall, but they graciously left Sam, Frodo, and Pippin more food for breakfast. As Frodo eats, Pippin launches into a barrage of probing questions until he's shooed off by a pensive Frodo. With one last sarcastic barb, Pippin leaves, and we're left with a window into what must be an easygoing, teasing friendship. Frodo is thinking about the coming day, which leads him to think farther down the road. Here's his interior monologue from the book. No, I could not, he said to himself. It's one thing to take my young friends walking over the Shire with me 
until we are hungry and weary and food and bed are sweet. To take them into exile, where hunger and weariness may have no cure, is quite another. Even if they're willing to come, the inheritance is mine alone. I don't think I ought even to take Sam. So Frodo is planning to leave the Shire alone, against Gandalf's advice. And we get a sample of his decidedly unhobbity self-talk. I don't know why Frodo is more verbose than the other hobbits. Could it be to show that he's more educated? Or maybe less in touch with the Shire? Either way, we should point out the foreshadowing in this passage. Frodo does eventually lead his friends out of the Shire. An incurable weariness will be his tragic consequence. In the midst of this breakfast meditation, Frodo catches sight of Sam, and after just rebuking Pippin for the same thing, starts in with the questions. Does Sam still want to leave the Shire, even though he's already seen the elves? Even if there's a chance he can't return? This incessant questioning makes it clear that Frodo has a more open relationship with Sam than he does with Pippin. All of this is despite the inequality in Frodo and Sam's relationship. So I'd like to sidestep for a minute to talk about this inequality. There's a lot to say about Frodo and Sam's relationship, but at this point I think that might end up taking a whole episode, and I'm still figuring out what that might look like. For now, it's important to acknowledge that at the beginning of the journey, Frodo and Sam are far from equals. Sam works for Frodo, as his father did for Bilbo, and though it's made clear that only Sauron uses slavery, Sam repeatedly calls Frodo master. Especially in these early chapters, he's often shown as either childlike or of lesser intelligence than Frodo. His loyalty is described in a way that is closer to a pet dog than a friend. And just because I'm still salty about it from the last chapter, Let's not forget that though Frodo seems to see him as a close confidant, Sam does not appear to have made the guest list to the last birthday at Bag End. So there seems to be this problematic inequality of power and intelligence that we should not be ignoring. At this point in the story, readers can be forgiven for wondering whether Sam has the capacity or agency to tell Frodo he'd rather stay in the Shire. And that is why the next exchange is so important. It's our first moment where things are not as they initially appear, and it marks this subtle turning point for both Sam's personality and his relationship with Frodo. So the two are discussing the previous night, and Sam says that the elves spoke to him about Frodo in the journey. He tells them, quote, I'm going with him if he climbs to the moon, and if any of those black riders try to stop him, they'll have Sam Gamgee to reckon with. Sam goes on to describe the elves themselves, and Frodo is so startled at his thoughtfulness that he actually looks for an outward sign of change in him. Frodo is learning that, get this, his companion can not only think for himself, he's even capable of some deep introspection. Sam tells Frodo, after last night, I feel different. I seem to see ahead in a kind of way. I know we are going to take a very long road into darkness, but I know I can't turn back. It isn't to see elves now, nor dragons, nor mountains that I want. 
I don't rightly know what I want, but I have something to do before the end, and it lies ahead, not in the Shire. I must see it through, sir, if you understand me. I'm so grateful for this passage for a few reasons. Sam is showing Frodo that he's capable of critical thought and autonomy, and we, the reader, can be sure that he isn't taking on this quest due to a lack of either. We now know that Sam feels called to this journey to follow his own destiny. But there's a little more to unpack here, because of course there is. Now there's that statement, I don't rightly know what I want, but I have something to do before the end, and it lies ahead, not in the Shire. Sam isn't setting off to slay the villain or rescue a princess. Without any clear endgame, he's just putting one foot in front of the other because he feels it's the right thing to do. And I think that this quiet kind of bravery is more relatable than that of the hero on a quest. So let me explain. Probably everyone at any stage of life has felt that pervasive pressure to have your life completely figured out. You know the questions. What will you do when you graduate? When are you having children? Where will you be in 10 years? We often feel that if we aren't on a predictable track, as others often appear to be, that we are somehow lost or worse of less worth than they are. I appreciate that Sam has the guts to say up front that he has no idea what his goal is and that he'll be following his inner compass and figuring out meaning later. That's his plan and he doesn't feel the need to explain or justify it. None of us have life figured out, and we should try to abandon the need to pretend that we do. So to put all that in a nutshell, we should all be more like Sam. Much like me realizing that we are only two pages into chapter four at this point, Frodo realizes that his late sleep has gotten the journey off schedule. He decides to take the group off-road on a shortcut, despite Pippin's objections. At the end of their debate, hilariously, Frodo's desire to avoid the Black Rider is just about equal with his desire to keep Pippin from making a long stop at a pub called the Golden Perch. So as the afternoon overtakes the morning, we find Frodo, Sam, and Pippin on their shortcut, fighting through tangled thickets and steep terrain. It's one of those hot, late September days that gets more humid and sticky as storm clouds loom closer in the distance. Here in the undergrowth, they can't feel the breeze that moves the tree branches above. The shortcut should be about 18 miles in a straight line, but now the hobbits find themselves sweaty, scratched, and stuck at the bottom of a deep, muddy bank covered in brambles. All of a sudden, everyone's ready to go back. Sam looks behind as far off the bank as he can and gasps when he glimpses a tall black horse and its rider stooping nearby. Hobbits have to be shocked that their home field advantage didn't help them outmaneuver their creepy follower. And though it appears that it doesn't want to risk leading its horse down the steep slope, it does know where the hobbits are. Frightened, they press on through the foliage.
Luckily, as the day wears on, the ground becomes more level. Unluckily, the hobbits begin to realize that they aren't quite sure where they are or which direction they're heading. And then the sky opens up. Quote, the leaves blew upwards in sudden gusts of wind, and spots of rain began to fall from the overcast sky. Then the wind died away, and the rain came streaming down. They trudged along as fast as they could over patches of grass and through thick drifts of old leaves, and all about them the rain pattered and trickled. They did not talk, but kept glancing back and from side to side. After a few more wet and paranoid miles, they stopped for lunch under a huge elm tree with thick yellow leaves that have kept the ground below dry. Tired and bedraggled, they open their packs to find a surprise that lifts their spirits. From the book, they found that the elves had filled their bottles with a clear drink, pale golden in color. It had the scent of a honey made of many flowers, and it was wonderfully refreshing. Very soon, they were laughing and snapping their fingers at rain and at black riders. Now here, I need to make a very important statement. A PSA from me to you. If you've never had a glass of wine on a porch while it's raining, please put this on your to-do list today. There are very few things in life that rival a quiet glass of rainy porch wine. That is all. So Frodo, Sam, and Pippin are drying off, enjoying their elven porch wine, begin singing a silly drinking song. Their troubles seem smaller, and we get to see what a hobbit walking party would normally look like in a happier world. They start another verse a little louder, and... A long-drawn wail came down the wind like the cry of some evil and lonely creature. It rose and fell and ended on a high, piercing note. Even as they sat and stood, as if suddenly frozen, it was answered by another cry, fainter and farther off, but no less chilling to the blood. There was then a silence, broken only by the sound of wind in the leaves. Frodo decides that it must be some sort of call or signal because he thinks he heard unintelligible words in the cry. No one speaks, but everyone is thinking of the Black Riders. It's a true holy crap moment. Just as we begin to experience the peaceful Shire countryside as the hobbits know it, it's revealed to be hiding something sinister. It's also the first confirmation the hobbits have that they're being tracked by more than one entity. Hunted, lost, and fearing both the nightfall and open country ahead, the hobbits have nothing to do but cork their bottles and continue on. By the way, I need to quickly note that 
right now I'm resisting the urge to talk about everything going on offstage with the writers and Gandalf during this chapter. It's a lot. As of right now, it looks like it'll have to end up being its own mini-sode. So until then, we'll be sticking with just the movements of Frodo and company. After more walking, Frodo, Sam, and Pippin find themselves reluctantly leaving the cover of the forest and making their way into the flatter fields and meadows. Rain clouds break, and soon the hobbits find themselves at a farm. Pippin excitedly recognizes it as belonging to a friend, Farmer Maggot. Frodo is less excited and describes an episode from his wild younger years when he was caught stealing mushrooms by the old farmer. Incensed, Maggot beat the teenage mushroom thief and had his dogs chase Frodo away. So to pull back the curtain a little, I tried really hard to look into this and figure out something that would make this little nugget more palatable to readers that aren't used to people beating people over mushrooms. But you guys, it backfired. It turns out that the versions we see in the books is much more tame than earlier drafts. So seek it out online if you want, but for now all I'll say is that apparently beating and threatening a mushroom thieving orphan is business as usual for hobbits. But at least we get a little bit of history here. At that mushroom thieving time of his life, Frodo was anywhere between 12 and 21 which is about 8 to 13 human years. His parents both died in a boating accident at 12, so he lived with his huge extended family at their huge communal hole known as Brandy Hall. Around this time, he developed a reputation as, in Farmer Maggot's words, one of the worst young rascals of Buckland. I think it's sad. A grieving kid without supportive adults acting out is an old story. So Frodo has a reputation as a trouble orphan in a culture that assigns social value according to family status. It gives another dimension to the Sackville Baggins' outrage at losing their inheritance to him. Also, it explains why he's beaten by a farmer who is later careful to use the honorifics Mr. Baggins and Mr. Frodo, while no such title is given to Sam if he's spoken to at all. So when Frodo's in his twenties, Bilbo returns from his quest and adopts him. Knowing Bilbo's passion for respectability and social position over the events of The Hobbit, one has to wonder whether he would have taken in someone like Frodo if not for that first fateful visit from Gandalf and the dwarves. So they meet the old farmer and his three dogs, all of whom are feeling a little jumpy from a recent visit by a mysterious guest. The farmer invites them in for a mug of ale and a chat. Now, before they move into Maggot's farmhouse, let's talk about Farmer Maggot's dogs. I'm sorry it's another tangent, but I really want to talk about it. I have lately been thinking a lot about Grip, Fang, and Wolf. They're described as wolfish looking, which sticks out as strange to me because anytime we see wolves in Middle Earth, they're usually on the side of evil earth is a quaint hobbit 
doing with three ferocious, wolvish dogs. Now, I can't find much support for this, but I'd like to tell you my theory. So 90 years before the beginning of this book, the Shire endured an abnormally long, cold winter. It was so cold, the Brandywine River on the eastern border of the Shire froze over, allowing these huge white wolves to invade from the north. The Bucklanders fought off the invasion, but I think that some remnants remained and were slowly domesticated, becoming distant ancestors of Grip, Fang, and Wolf. I want that to be true, because how cool would that be? So Frodo, Sam, and Pippin accept Maggot's invitation to come inside. After a big mug of beer and some small talk, the farmer tells them about his last visitor. He describes a black rider riding up to his farm and the very smell of him frightening off the dogs. Have you seen Baggins? It asks and offers gold in return for information. This offer throws light on later cooperators we're going to see. Not everyone gives information out of pure intimidation like the gaffer did. And we'll later see that many in Middle-earth knowingly collaborated with evil for financial gain. It's all very disturbing, but I can't help but laugh a little picturing black riders galloping around with bags clanking with gold for bribes. And then how do they get more if they run out? Anyway, a frightened and insulted maggot bravely or stupidly shoes the rider off of his land. Clearly, money wasn't the way to his heart. But you have to wonder what the answer would have been if he offered mushrooms. Now the story leaves Frodo speechless. Clearly, he didn't expect to be in danger already, and in the face of it, he freezes. It's a tendency we're going to see repeated in the coming chapters. Farmer Maggot notices his indecision and fills in the gaps with a string of speculation that begins as humorous and ends as disconcertingly close to Frodo's big secret. From the book, Then I'll tell you what to think, said Maggot. You should never have gone mixing yourself up with hobbiton folk, Mr. Frodo. Folk are queer up there. Sam stirred in his chair and looked at the farmer with an unfriendly eye. But you were always a reckless lad. When I heard you had left the brandy bucks and gone off to that old Mr. Bilbo, I said that you were going to find trouble. Mark my words, this all comes of those strange doings of Mr. Bilbo's. His money was gotten some strange fashion in foreign parts, they say. Maybe there are some that want to know what has become of the gold and jewels that he buried in the hill of Hobbiton, as I hear. The old farmer goes on to advise Frodo to stay in Buckland and rely on friends to protect him from these outlandish folk. He guesses, one, that they may be looking for Bilbo after all, two, that it's no accident both Frodo and the rider showed up at his farm on the same day, and three, that Frodo is now wondering how he'll get to Buckleberry Ferry without being caught. Ding, 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 three for three, Farmer Maggot. This conversation at the farmhouse is yet another sign that not all is as it seems. 
not just a black rider showing up at the farm, which is creepy in and of itself. When we first meet Farmer Maggot, he appears to be just another run-of-the-mill hobbit who only cares about food, farming, and country gossip. But his read on the situation shows that he's much more attuned to the truth of things than anyone expects. Later on, we learn that Tom Bombadil not only speaks with him on occasion, but holds him in high regard. He tells the hobbits, quote, There's earth under his old feet and clay on his fingers, wisdom in his bones, and both his eyes are open. And besides that endorsement, the crusty old hobbit has the strength to kick a ring wraith off of his land. Like a hobbit Yoda, Farmer Maggot is one of those unassuming salt-of-the-earth types that confound our initial impression with their deep wisdom or understanding. There are many of these characters in the trilogy, for example, Sam Gamgee at the top of this chapter. These characters remind us that the truth in Middle-earth is usually buried just under the surface of our perception. And like them, we must make use of observation, patience, and time to understand what is real. It's the difference between knowledge and wisdom. Farmer Maggot invites everyone to stay for dinner and promises to secretly drive the three travelers to the ferry afterward. The setup is kind of like when you go to the drive-in movies and hide your friends under a blanket in the back of a pickup truck bed. Not that I know anything about that. Frodo gratefully accepts, and he, Pippin, Sam, Farmer Maggot, Mrs. Maggot, Five Maggot, children, and a few farmhands all sit down to enjoy a huge farmhouse meal with bacon, beer, and of course, mushrooms. Soon, dinner's over, everyone's full, and the farmhouse hobbits load Sam, Pippin, Frodo, and Farmer Maggot onto the wagon. Mrs. Maggot calls after her husband not to argue with foreigners, and the four set off into the foggy night. It's chilly and quiet for five tense miles. All Frodo can hear is the step of the pony's hooves. Just as they reach the ferry, they hear the sound they've all been dreading, the hoof-falls of an approaching rider. Frodo hides himself in the back of the wagon, and, showing his bravery once again, Farmer Maggot confronts the mysterious shape on the horse. After an anxious moment, the rider reveals himself to be Mary Brandybuck, who came down to the ferry to search for his wayward friends. Relieved but still nervous to be outside with the sinister rider nearby, Farmer Maggot says goodbye and gives Frodo a basket before he leaves. As they all watch him turn around and head home, Frodo realizes that the basket is full of mushrooms, a sign that their troubled past is quite forgotten. That is the end of chapter four, A Shortcut to Mushrooms. By the way, if you're like me, you finish this chapter worried about Farmer Maggot. Does he make it home okay? The short answer, we don't know, but probably.
So we do know that the ring wraiths were on a stealth mission, to the point that they use hardly any violence in the next few chapters, even when it may have served them. There's also the fact that on their return to the Shire, the hobbits probably would have heard a rumor of a murder shortly before their departure. So no news is good news, and that's the best we can say. So with that, we will close chapter four. In the next chapter, a bath, a dinner party, and a spy unmasked. I look forward to seeing you then. Thanks for listening.